0: Welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee.
1: Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people.
0: I'm Sefi Kogan.
1: And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman.
2: I'm a beast, a callous hypocrite. Yesterday, I had an argument with mother the matter was trivial. I've outgrown all of my summer dresses. They're too short and tight for me.
1: Mandy Gonzalez is best known for her Broadway roles in Hamilton and In the Heights and on the CBS series Madam Secretary. But you just heard her reading from a very different script, the diary entry of Janina Bauman, a 15-year-old resident of the Warsaw Ghetto. It was one of 18 journal entries read virtually by Hollywood and Broadway performers for the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a Living Memorial to the Holocaust, on International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Mandy joins us now to discuss her role in the program titled 18 Voices, a Liberation Day Reading of Young Authors' Diaries from the Holocaust. Later, we'll talk to the curator of 18 Voices, Alexandra Sapruder. Mandy,
2: welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you so much, Manya. I'm I'm so happy to be here.
1: So that clip we just heard really reminds us that some of these writers were just teenagers with with foolish teenage concerns, and they were forced to grow up in these horrific circumstances. I mean, Janina's entire entry is less than two minutes long, but the ending wrecked me. (laughs) Did you struggle with the emotions, or were you able to compartmentalize that as a a professional actress?
2: No, I I think... uh it's heartbreaking to read that story but it's so important to, that story is heard so because you identify i think as a as a young you know as a as a younger person i definitely understand where she's coming from you know not wanting to wear a certain dress and your mom wants you to wear something that you don't want to wear but her circumstances are so much different because everything is so heightened because of the danger. And so she uses that in order to not do something. And that's just something that teenagers do, but she feels so terrible about it because of the circumstance. And so I felt heartbroken to read that story. And I also felt like this was a very important story to hear because it's you know, it's important to know that there were people of all ages going through this.
1: You also read two entries by 21-year-old Elsa Bender, which gave me chills as she's anticipating the hope of a new year, 1942. And it reminded me of how so many people ushered in 2021 with so much hope. Um, But 1942 wasn't so great for the Jews. And um, could you tell me a little bit about embodying Elsa?
2: Yes, I I feel because we recorded this pretty... um... Soon after the new year of 2021, I could identify with what she was feeling of. This is the year of hope, and she continued to say that, but her reality was just filled with not knowing whether she was going to live or die. I really had to read it, go through it, break it down so that I, I really could just be a vessel for her story. But it was so beautiful in both entries because she never gave up that hope. Did you feel
1: a personal connection to either Elza or Janina or, or any of the other children portrayed by your colleagues?
2: I did. I think that I felt a connection to both. Janina, I remember my Bubby when I was younger telling me stories because her parents came to America I think before she was born, and she's the youngest of six. So they came in like the early 1900s, but the rest of my great-grandmother's family did not come, and they stayed in Poland. And I remember my grandmother, who lived in St. Louis and grew up in St. Louis in an apartment building, but she used to tell me stories that she and her family would send packages back to Poland of clothes. And at that time, she was a teenager, and so I I imagine she didn't have a lot, and... The clothes that she was sending back, I'm sure, were nice clothes. My great grandmother made all of their clothing. So, and she would say to her mother, like, "Where are these clothes going?" And her mom just would cry. And they would send them every month. My grandmother said, regardless if they had enough, they would always send something back. And so I, I felt, I felt like I, that story of Janina re- reminded me so much of my grandma because clothes were so, I mean, they're so important, but they were so important to my grandmother um, growing up because anything store-bought was like, what? So she made everything, everything was so precious. So I could only imagine what Janina was feeling and I could see my grandma in the same position.
1: Now, you are also a rising author. Simon & Schuster will release your first middle-grade novel, Fearless, in April. With all you do, when did you start writing a novel?
2: I've always been writing. And after my daughter was born, I really took time to be home and be with her. And I started to create stories and create characters. And these characters have kind of stayed with me throughout these past nine years of my daughter, of her childhood. And so about three years ago, I started this movement online called Hashtag Fearless Squad. And it's a movement about inclusion and uh, belonging, because I had so many young people that were writing to me at the theater and telling me that they felt they didn't belong. And I thought, I've been so lucky in my life. If you don't have a fearless squad, you can be part of mine. And together we can change the world. And I never realized that it would reach as many people as it's reached, thousands of people. And so I had to start thinking, and I thought about these characters that I've been creating and how I really want kids to be able to see themselves in stories, in the stories I create, stories that I would have loved to see as a child. And now the first part, the first book of my Fearless series is coming out on April 6th, a middle grade novel about a girl named Monica Garcia who goes from California all the way to opening night on Broadway and the people she meets along the way and the fearless squad that she creates. It's adventure. It's Broadway. If you love both, you're going to have a really good time reading this story.
1: Mazel tov. That is very exciting.
2: (laughs) I'm going to switch gears a little
1: bit. There has been a lot of discussion in this past year, especially, about confronting misperceptions within our own Jewish community. Um, Jewish institutions are striving more to include Jews of color and kind of reconsider this obtuse notion of what it means to look Jewish as a Jewish Latina. Do you struggle with
2: or encounter that lack
1: of awareness or or feel marginalized in any way? Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: I think growing up in a small town in California, you know, my father is Mexican-American, my mother is Jewish, they met as pen pals while my father was in service during the Vietnam War. And I remember my mother telling me about uh, the letters that she would write to my dad and telling him that she was Jewish. And my father came from a very small town and he didn't know what that was. And, And so my mom kind of had to explain it. And then when they fell in love and got married, when he came back from the war, my mom said that our children are Jewish. And my dad just said, okay. And he would go with us to temple. And we were bot mitz I was bot mitzvah, my brother was bar mitzvah. And um I felt like always a little bit that I did belong, I didn't belong, because I had so many people that would come up and say, Oh, you're Gonzalez, like you're Jewish. I always kind of had to explain myself. And then to other people, the opposite. So I think um, now I see my daughter as she's in Hebrew school and all of the different kids that now go to to school. And she doesn't have that same experience because the community has been so incredibly welcoming. And not that my community when I was younger wasn't welcoming, but I just think I I was so lucky because I had a father who was so proud of who we were. And... um, you know, would wear the yamaka and uh, and come in with us and and never looked at things as us being different. We just who were who we were. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to shift gears once again uh, because you two are a survivor. It's been a year since you very courageously announced you had breast cancer, uh, and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> How is your health?
2: Thank you so much, Manya, for asking me. Um, I'm doing really well. Thank you. Uh, You know, I had my scans uh, last month and I'm happy to say that uh, my scans were clear and I continue to thrive. The thing that's so hard for me, like I said, I'm very close to my family and not being able to have my mother with me during this time or my sister was very, very hard. But I felt like the community around me surrounded me with so much love and hope and my husband was just such an incredible rock. For my family. But I'm so happy to say that I made it. Cancer does not run in my family. I had just turned 40. It was my first mammogram. And I never thought that I would be one that was a part of this journey. And I feel so lucky to have gone through it. So now that I can advocate for others, it is very common to go through this in the Ashkenazi, if you're Ashkenazi Jewish, as well as if you have Latino heritage. You shouldn't feel like, well, it's not in my family, therefore it won't happen to me. You should always advocate for yourself to to get checked because early detection is so important in any community. And uh, it having that uh, mammogram early really saved my life.
1: Mandy, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Now for the curator of 18 voices for the Museum of Jewish Heritage, Alexandra Zapruder. Alexandra is the author of Salvaged Pages, a National Jewish Book Award winner about the diaries of teenagers during the Holocaust. It has become the basis for an MTV documentary and an educational curriculum for middle school and high school students. Alexandra has expanded her work to explore the diaries and blogs of young writers from other genocides around the world. And if you think the name Zapruder sounds familiar, her second book might explain why. 26 Seconds tells the personal side of her grandfather's iconic footage of President Kennedy's assassination. Alexandra, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So we heard a small snippet of Mandy Gonzalez reading from Janina Bauman's diary. How did you
3: select those passages? When I first began curating the readings for this event, I was completely overwhelmed because there's so much great material. And so we decided after some work on it to focus on diaries written by young people in ghettos in particular. So that's really the focus. So I really was thinking about what ghetto life is all about. You know, what were the various elements of ghetto life that I would want to evoke, both the difficult aspects of life and also, you know, in the words of Primo Levi, moments of reprieve. I was thinking about all of those things.
1: Now, Mandy Gonzalez read entries from Janina Bowman and Elsa Bender. What made those particularly important to include?
3: So Janina Bowman, very little of her diary survived. I loved that entry because it's really about a young girl coming of age. You know, she's writing in her diary about how all her dresses are too small for her, how she... You know, her body's changing and everything is too tight. And she wanted a new dress. And her mother said, you have a dress. You have this red dress, which she didn't want to wear. She wanted to wear a different one. And so she sort of used the excuse of calling attention to herself in a dangerous way in the ghetto in order to get her mother to lend her a beautiful gray dress. And she says at the end of the entry, now I look gorgeous and I hate myself. And it just captured... This way in which even in the ghetto, even during the Holocaust, even in Warsaw, even in amid all of these other things, a teenager is still a teenager. Wow, it really reminds us of the innocence of these children. And I would say, too, one of the things that is so easy to forget about these writings is that young people go through the developmental stages of adolescence, whether they are living through war or genocide or not. You know, you don't get exempt from those stages just because your life is in upheaval. And so what you have in these diaries that's so amazing is the larger context of the war and the Holocaust and persecution sort of unfolding against the backdrop of their changing, struggling identities. And it makes them very rich and very powerful and very different from adult diaries, where, you know, our identities as adults are far more fixed.
1: And what about Elsa Bender? What about her story was particularly moving?
3: Well, I adore Elsa Bender's diary. It's one of the diaries I included in salvaged pages in my book. And, you know, Elsa was a very quick-witted, somewhat sarcastic, self-critical kind of person. Her voice is very specific, and it kind of cuts through the decades in a way that's really powerful, I think. And she writes in her diary about... Something that many writers write about, which is about the new year and the passage of time and the relationship between the passage of time and hope. And the idea that young people were watching these years go by, trying to survive until the liberation, and they were sometimes able to maintain hope in the face of that. Sometimes they lost hope. It was not consistent. It sort of depended on the circumstances, but that there was something, you know, very profoundly, again, very profoundly human about that. You
1: wrote this book back in 2002, right, the original edition. How did you find the
3: diaries and what led you to them? Well, I was very, very fortunate when I graduated from college. I returned home to Washington, D.C., And I got a job at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And I was on the curatorial team for Remember the Children, Daniel's Story, which is the museum's exhibition for young visitors. And as the exhibition's researcher, I was asked to look at diaries that were kept by teenagers at the time to help us create the exhibition. And so I did that. And when I began reading, there were just really only about six or seven, maybe eight published young writers' diaries at that time. And I read them, and they were just, they were amazing. They were incredibly powerful, beautiful, interesting, provocative. Each writer was very different from the other. You know, at first I had this idea that I would do a collection of just those diaries. But then I wanted to research more. And the more I looked, the more I found, and the body of material grew and grew. And I have to say that You know, it's now been nearly 30 years since I first started this research, and it is every bit as compelling and interesting and fascinating to me as it was 30 years ago. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, you've developed some educational materials to go along with the diaries for both middle school students and high school students. I'm curious what you hope the takeaways are from those
3: materials. You know, these young writers make a really serious contribution to the historical and the literary record of the Holocaust, on par with the kinds of contributions that adult writers make. And so the goal in teaching from this material is first and foremost to help young people learn how to extract that information. How do you read a primary source for its historical value? How do you grapple with the limitations of a primary source and understand its strengths? How do you put small pieces of information in a larger context and understand what light that document might shed on a very complex history? And from a literary standpoint, how do young writers express their experiences in ways that are fresh and new and interesting? Something that you know a young writer might say in a certain way can, you know, really connect to the broader kind of human experience, which is, after all, what all great literature really does. I would say that it is always my hope that young people will see themselves in these writers in the sense that these were just regular kids. Some were better writers than others. Some were better educated than others. Some were more sophisticated than others. But Every writer, whether they were living in a farming village, a peasant, or living in a city, whether they were very educated, whether they were from an Orthodox Jewish family or a completely assimilated one, every single one of them engaged in that basic gesture, which is to pick up a pen and write what was happening to them, to observe their lives, describe them, and reflect on them. And that's something that every single young person can do. And so... The sort of biggest, biggest, biggest frame is always about, you know, how can these writings inspire young people to think about their own voices in a different way and think, you know, I don't have to wait to grow up to say something about my life. I don't have to wait to grow up to make a contribution. I might have something to say right now that really matters.
1: Okay, so you talk about writing, about your own experience and the importance of young writers embracing that This Friday, the Jewish Museum of London begins unveiling pages from an 11-year-old girl's diary on Twitter. And seeing that made me think about just the intersection, that style of communication versus social media. I mean, do you agree that social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, are kind of the diaries of today's teenagers?
3: Um, Yes and no. So, you know, I curated an exhibition at Holocaust Museum Houston, which is about the diaries of young people in war and genocide. A Little more than half of them are Holocaust-era diaries, and the other five of them were written by young people in more contemporary war and genocide, including Bosnia-Herzegovina, Iraq, Syria, Japanese-American internment camps, etc. And one of the things that I learned in that work was that the more contemporary diaries, especially those written in the 2000s and beyond, were written in a digital format, as blogs or on a cell phone and transmitted. and I think that it is inevitable that technology will shape and change the way that we record our lives. Again, the gesture might be the same, but the form that it takes is different. I think in some ways you could say that social media can, at best, serve that function. And at the same time, I think it's complicated with young people because there is a performative element to social media. There is a way in which... Social media can undermine the project of authenticity, which is ultimately what writing a personal narrative like that or a diary is about. And so I think we have to think about new platforms and new ways for those spaces to be created for young people.
1: No, I appreciate that point. But I, I do worry that the point that you make about introspection versus performance, that we're at risk of losing the record of an entire generation, the authentic record of a generation.
3: I agree, I mean, I think, I guess what I would say is that I think we have to, as adults who care about young people, we have to try to create spaces for that to happen. And I think that is difficult. And as a parent, you know, trying to swim against the current of popular culture can feel impossible, really. But I think we have to try.
1: Yeah. I want to go back to the educational materials that you developed around salvaged pages. I mean, we are, and we hear this repeatedly, we're losing the Holocaust survivors. Eventually, very soon, we will not be able to hear the testimonies, the live testimonies of survivors. So does this, through these diaries, really hold particular significance for reaching and kind of communicating to the next generation? What happened during the Holocaust and giving it that authenticity? In other words, are these diaries
3: growing in importance? I think these diaries will always be important. And I think that they sit alongside the surviving testimonies of people who lived through this time. They offer different things. It is true that there will come a day when there will be no more Holocaust survivors, a sort of painful and difficult thing to acknowledge. Fortunately, those records have been preserved, and they do have certain kinds of insights in them, you know, that come with retrospect that diaries don't have. And yet, diaries will always be different in that there is something about a record that is kept in real time without an understanding of the outcome, without a knowledge of the outcome, that does collapse the distance between the reader and the writer. And so, I don't know if they're gaining in importance but I think that they certainly remain as compelling as they have ever been. That certainly seems to be true for me. And when I work with teenagers and read these diaries with them, I find that they respond to them in a very visceral way.
1: I can't let you go without asking about your second book, 26 Seconds. You describe your grandfather Abraham's film as having a life that exists way beyond our life. Did your grandfather's legacy of documenting a life lost inform your calling?
3: You know, I cannot say that I think it did, partly because this is going to maybe sound a little crazy, but I think it actually might have been the other way around, that, you know, when I was growing up, we almost never talked about the Zapruder film. It was very kind of compartmentalized in our family. And so I didn't really assimilate it as part of my identity in my growing up years, The work on Salvaged Pages was so formative. I mean, I think of it as my life's work, really, that when I came around to thinking about whether I wanted to take on this story about my grandfather's film and whether I wanted to write this history, I think it was more informed by my belief in the enduring power of primary sources and historical records than the other way around. And it did make me think about, you know, mostly the corollary that I would draw is Anne Frank's iconic diary and how it has become a stand-in for the Holocaust. And the Zapruder film and how it has become a stand-in for the Kennedy assassination. And I think those are useful and limited constructs. You know, so I always want to say, what's beyond that? You know, how can you go beyond What you think you know, the first thing that you encounter, and scratch the surface and see what nuances and what layers might lie beneath. And you raise that very question in the book,
1: whether technology is really as reliable as we think in helping us ascertain the truth. I think about other footage that led to turning points in our history, the death of George Floyd, the beating of Rodney King, countless scenes from the Capitol riots, But do these diaries, these inner, unvarnished thoughts of ordinary, innocent children, do they bring us closer to a universal truth
3: about the Holocaust? I think that these writings complicate what we think we know. And I think that in the best version of our efforts to understand our lives, whether it is the past or the present, it is about going beyond the surface. It is about thinking about how these kinds of records can complicate what we think we know. And that is true for the Zapruder film, it is true for the vast visual record of our lives now, and it is true of these diaries. And, you know, this can get into some really difficult questions because, you know, there are a lot of people out there who question the authenticity of these events to begin with, whether the Holocaust happened, who killed President Kennedy, and who we all are at risk, I think, of having an individual record or an individual image sort of become the only lens through which we see reality, and we bring our own ideas to those records. When we're talking about the Holocaust, what is most useful, I think, is to connect to the humanity of the people who lived it. The more we are able to connect to the humanity of other people, the better people we will be.
1: Thank you for joining us, Alexandra. Thank you so much for having me. And you can find a recap of 18 Voices on the Museum of Jewish Heritage website. We'll provide the link in our show notes.
0: Since the global vaccine rollout began, one country has soared to the top of the charts, outpacing every other nation in vaccinating its citizens. Even as we wish the rollout in the U.S. were going more smoothly, I know a lot of us American Jews take tremendous pride that that great success story is Israel. Joining us now to discuss is someone who has reported on the vaccine rollout, the senior contributing editor and diplomatic correspondent of the Jerusalem Post, Lahav Harkov. Lahav, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for inviting me onto the podcast.
0: First off, can you just give us the short version of Israel's vaccine success? How much of the population is vaccinated as of today? Are there concerns about vaccine supply, that kind of thing?
4: Um, Huge numbers. I mean, like more than... 20% of the population. I don't have the exact Mm -hmm. update for today, but very large numbers of Israelis. It started out with, you know, people who are age 60 and up, and now today it's just been open to age 35 and up, as well as 16 to 18-year-olds so they could take their exams and finish high school. And yeah, there's not so much a concern of running out. There was a couple of weeks ago, but then Israel was able to quickly get more doses. And so it just seems that we're very efficiently vaccinating everyone or everyone who's 16 and older by age group. And it's a big success on two different counts. First of all, it's a big success for our health system, which is very, very good.
0: This success didn't come out of nowhere, right? Like, what's the secret sauce? What kind of circumstances conspired to enable Israel to lead the world in vaccinations?
4: I mean, beyond Israel's excellent health services that I described and and its somewhat unique system. Netanyahu sort of took this on as a really important project and as he saw as the way to sort of reopen Israel. And he got personally involved. I just listened to him speak to the World Economic Forum, usually in Davos, now on the Internet about his efforts. He said he spoke to the CEO of Pfizer 21 times. And the sales pitch he made to Pfizer and to Moderna is that Israel is a perfect test population. We're not such a big country. And that, you know, if you give all the Israelis vaccines quickly, you can then watch the population and see what the effect is. Israel's also giving a small amount of data to these companies. That was sort of part of the deal. After we finished the first batch of vaccines to get the second batch of vaccines quickly, some of the deal was, They're not giving, like, personal data per person, but they're giving, like, overall population data so that the companies can view the trends. And so people from Europe, for example, who, like, you know, are barely getting vaccinated and they're wondering why the EU is so slow. So Netanyahu sort of negotiated this to make things go as fast as he
0: can. It's incredible. It's an amazing success story. Unfortunately, about as soon as the success story started to take off and kind of be heard around the world, there were other stories that started circulating. And here, this kind of maybe touches on some of your day-to-day work as a, a diplomatic correspondent. These stories were blaming Israel for not vaccinating the Palestinians. Obviously, I mean, I feel comfortable saying this about myself, and I think I can extend it to you. None of us want to see Palestinians or anyone else dying from the virus. But what do you make of these stories? I mean, in your journalistic research, have you or your colleagues discovered Israel to have any such responsibility?
4: So first of all, of course, you know, I would like people to be healthy and not catch coronavirus and not get sick and include the Palestinians, but even beyond the sort of humane side of it, Israel should want Palestinians to be vaccinated for, quote unquote, selfish reasons, because we are a population that mixes a lot. You know, the borders are. Yes, there are checkpoints and yes, there's a security barrier. But these are populations that mix a lot. And until the Palestinians get coronavirus under control, which they're doing pretty well, all things considered. But unless they get it under control, you know, it'll continue to affect us as well. So there's that. As far as the legal responsibility under international law an occupying force has to arrange for the health care of the occupied population now for starters israel does not consider itself an occupying power the territory is disputed it's not occupied territory at least under how israeli legal authorities understand the situation to be regardless israel did arrange for health care for the palestinians by signing the Oslo Accords, which puts health very firmly under the responsibility of the Palestinian Authority. And it explicitly talks about, you know, that vaccines are the Palestinian Authority Health Ministry's responsibility. It also says that Israel and the Palestinians will cooperate on fighting pandemics, which is something that Israel and the Palestinians have done. In the beginning of the pandemic, Israel provided guidance, provided testing kits, Um, To the extent that the UN, even the UN, which is so anti-Israel, commended Israel and the Palestinians for the cooperation. You could like Google it, Israel and the Palestinians, though the word they used was excellent, that they're doing an excellent job (laughs) cooperating. But then in about May, because of the Trump peace plan and Israel considering extending its sovereignty to parts of Judea and Samaria, the Palestinian Authority cut ties with Israel and didn't renew the ties basically until after Biden was elected. And, you know, in that time period, Israel ordered vaccines, you know, even after the Palestinian Authority never asked Israel for help with the vaccines. So Israel went along and took care of its own population as opposed to, you know, the neighboring population that does have its own, you know, basically autonomous government. The Palestinian Authority has taken care of its own vaccination is obviously, you know, Israel's number one in the world by far right now with vaccines, but It's participating in the World Health Organization's vaccine aid program, and they've also used some of their own funding to order the Russian vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine. They couldn't get Pfizer or Moderna, which were the first ones that were available, because they didn't have the facilities to keep it in a deep freeze, which is what's required. And they're supposed to start getting vaccines actually last week from Russia, and then there was some sort of technical issue, because Israel and the Palestinian Authority had actually already coordinated it and... Israel was ready to facilitate that transfer, um, but then it never happened. And I'm pretty sure that was like the news over the weekend. Today is Wednesday when we're recording this, and I, I haven't heard an update since the weekend on that. But certainly Israel's not doing anything to block Palestinians from getting the vaccine, which is something that a lot of news reports have said. Beyond that, Israel is vaccinating some Palestinians who are in Israeli prisons. Israel just started doing that a few days ago. And also, if the claim is that Israel is racist and is trying to kill the Arabs, which is both absurd and obscene, well, Israeli Arabs have the exact same access to vaccines as any other Israelis do. Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem are under Israel's health services, so they're not even Israeli citizens, and they're getting the vaccines as well.
0: You have to imagine the counterfactual also, because the Israeli presence in the West Bank is a military one. So what would it look like, right? If IDF trucks and troops roll into Palestinian villages, vaccine in tow, and, you know, start saying to Palestinians, you know, line up for us to inject you with this thing. I mean, there's no trust there at the Palestinian civilian level. Frankly, I'm not sure how much trust there is in their own health authorities necessarily either. But like that too would have been a major balagan, as they say.
4: Yeah, I mean, you have, like, professors at Rutgers, like, claiming that Israel harvests Palestinian organs even when nothing remotely looks like Israel's doing that. So can you imagine if Israeli soldiers were injecting Palestinians with something, even if it was so well-intentioned? Like, when Israel has good intentions, nobody gives us credit for it. So you could imagine. The whole thing is absurd. I mean, yeah, the idea that Israeli soldiers are going to walk into Ramallah and start giving people injections is ridiculous. And as I said, you know, by international law, Israel signed the Oslo Accords which is also an internationally recognized agreement. And so Israel is not responsible because the healthcare is arranged for.
0: The Palestinian Authority also did not ask Israel for this help. So it's very odd for people who, on the one hand, are saying that it's time for the Palestinians to be a sovereign nation, self-governing, you know, with self-determination, et cetera. And then on the other hand, say that Israel needs to swoop in, even absent the Palestinians requesting this kind of aid, and kind of insist, we're vaccinating our population.
4: They didn't ask for help for months. And then after this became like a scandal and a news story. It
0: was politically expedient to ask for help at a certain point, right?
4: Then suddenly they were like, oh yeah, maybe Israel could help us. Israel transferred 20 doses of the vaccine a few weeks ago, like at the beginning of the month that the Palestinians had asked for. 20? 20.
0: Like enough to vaccinate 10 people?
4: Yeah, this is what we discovered me and our Palestinian affairs reporter Khaled Abu Tameh, who did the heavy lifting, I will admit, in the story. Basically, the Palestinian health ministry didn't know about it, but the Palestinian Authority denies that it's going to senior members of the Palestinian Authority. The unprompted denial tells me that it's probably for Mahmoud Abbas and several other, you know, septuagenarians in his uh, immediate vicinity. It's in Israel's interest to be stability in the Palestinian Authority.
0: Well, Lahav, this was a great quick summary. Help us all get kind of boned up on this non-scandal and also take a little bit of pride in the way that Israel has been handling the vaccine rollout. If you have not been vaccinated yet, I hope that your day comes soon. And we thank you so much for joining us on People of the Pod.
4: This is the thing that makes me feel young, that I still am not eligible for the vaccine. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, me neither. But in America, that just means I'm under the age of 65. Right. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on People of the Pod. Thank you. now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Beverly Rosenbaum, the past president of AJC's Westchester-Fairfield Regent. Beverly, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about?
5: First, I want to thank you, Manya and Sefi, for inviting me to join you today. As you know, we just commemorated International Holocaust Remembrance Day this week, marking the 76th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, the most notorious Nazi concentration camp, and the epitome of evil. At our Shabbat table this week, we will be talking about that and remembering my beautiful mother who survived the Shoah and the rest of her family, all of whom were murdered in the Shoah for no other reason than the fact that they were Jews. My mother and her family are with me every day in everything that I do to try to continue their legacy and give meaning to their tragic past. I grew up thinking it was normal for mothers to wake up screaming from nightmares, not realizing how unique and troubling that was until I was old enough to understand what her nightmares were about. My mother, Margot Brenner Block, was born in Berlin, Germany in 1926. She was the oldest of three children in a very close-knit loving family. When she was just seven years old, Hitler came to power and her life changed dramatically as the rights of Jews in Germany steadily eroded. On November 9, 1938, Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, was perpetrated by the Nazis and her home and its attached first store were almost destroyed. My grandparents had been trying to secure visas to get out of Germany. And after that night, they were even more desperate to do so. Sadly, they faced impossible quotas and closed doors. To make a long story short, at age 14, my mother was taken from her grandparents' home in Poland separated from the rest of her family, and sent to the concentration camps. She spent the next four years enduring unimaginable starvation, dehumanization, and brutality, working as a slave laborer in multiple camps. She held on to her humanity and her dignity in whatever way she could through small acts of defiance. While working in a munitions factory, She deliberately put the incorrect amount of powder into the weapons she was making in an attempt to sabotage them. During one of the selections, she was put on the line to be taken to the gas chambers. Miraculously, a female Nazi guard pulled her off the line saying, you look like one of us. You're too pretty to be a Jew. My mother was very beautiful, blonde with blue eyes. She responded, I am a Jew and I'm proud of it. I don't know which aspect of this story is more remarkable the fact that she wasn't killed on the spot for saying this, or the fact that she had the courage to say this under such life and death circumstances. What kept my mother going was her unshakable sense of hope and her belief that she would ultimately be reunited with her family. After liberation, however, she learned the devastating news that her entire family had been killed and that at age 18, she was all alone in the world. Two years after the war, My mother emigrated to America where she eventually met my wonderful father, an American who made her feel safe, loved, and secure again. I was their only child and the three of us could not have been closer. My parents instilled in me a deep sense of pride in our Jewish identity and heritage and an unwavering love of Israel. I have vivid memories of my mother crying every year when the annual Salute to Israel parade was held incredulous at the fact that Jews could proudly march down the streets of New York together in masses waving Israeli flags. As a child, Israel was only a dream to my mother, an imaginary place that Jews prayed about returning to, and she never stopped being in awe of it having become a reality. We were deeply cognizant of the fact that had Israel existed in the 1930s, the Jews of Europe could have been saved." This week at our Shabbat table, we will also be talking about the lessons we need to take from the Holocaust, particularly now in light of recent events. We have been witnessing an alarming resurgence of anti-Semitism in Europe for a while, and now quite disturbingly, we have also been witnessing it here in the United States, from Charlottesville to Pittsburgh, to Poway to Muncie, as well as to the college campus where anti-Semitism is often masked as anti-Zionism. And of course, the recent siege of the Capitol, conducted by a mob that included neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other right-wing extremists, was nothing short of an attempt to overthrow our democratic values. The lessons of the Holocaust require us to recognize the stinging poison of hatred and intolerance in any form, and the necessity of being upstanders rather than bystanders when we see any acts of antisemitism, hatred, or bigotry. History has taught us that silence cannot be an option. For me, AJC is the perfect vehicle to advocate and to do all that I can to combat anti-Semitism and extremism and to work to ensure Israel's safety and security. I consider it to be both my privilege and my responsibility to use my voice to do so, to use the voice that my mother and her family did not have to honor their memory and perpetuate their legacy.
1: Beverly Sefi, at our Shabbat table, I will be telling my kids about my eighth grade English teacher, Mrs. O. I don't know about you, but there is not enough money in the world that would get me to repeat middle school. It was the most miserable time of my life. Mrs. O was my best friend. Every school day, rather than endure the mean girls and the oblivious boys after lunch, I ventured down the hallway to Mrs. O's classroom to hang out. Sometimes she let me leave mysterious love notes to boys on the blackboard, other times we'd sit and visit, and occasionally she'd let me help her prepare for a lesson. One of those lessons will always stand out in my mind. Mrs. O. introduced me to Anne Frank's diary. In fact, she didn't just introduce me to it. Much like the readings at the Museum of Jewish Heritage this week, she had me read Anne Frank's words out loud on a cassette tape that she played for students for years to come. Mrs. O. retired from teaching 23 years ago, but you never lose touch with your best friends. I called her this week after the interview you just heard with Alexandra Zapruder. Now, you may recall I asked Alexandra about the curriculum she designed around Salvage Pages, the collection of children's diaries from the Holocaust, and what she hoped students would take away. I was a little taken aback by her answer. I expected her to say the capacity of human cruelty, a formative moment in Jewish history, the key to understanding the dangers of anti-Semitism. Instead, she said she hoped every young person would see themselves in the diaries and feel empowered to write and contribute to the world. Of course, Holocaust education is also an objective, but it wasn't the first one she named. I asked Mrs. O, why did you have us read Anne Frank? Anne was at that age, she said. She had decisions to make, and even though it was during World War II, there wasn't that much different between what teenagers face and what Anne faced. She told me that when the state of Texas issued a new reading list and a new set of books for middle school students, Anne Frank was not one of the titles. So Mrs. O asked if she could keep a classroom set, which she handed out to students to read along with the young girl on the cassette tape. Then I asked Mrs. O, did you know I was Jewish? No, she said, I don't think I knew that until you got married. I told her I was sorry I didn't share that. I had my reasons. I was already escaping to my English teacher's classroom at lunchtime. I wasn't about to tell the mean girls in Waco, Texas that I was Jewish. "Mm, I could see that, she said. I worry so much about today's middle schoolers, the pressures added by social media, the isolation amplified by the pandemic, the vulnerability that can be so easily preyed upon. I can't think of a better objective than to empower young people to confidentially chronicle their experiences, both for their own mental well-being and for future generations. I don't know why I was so surprised by Alexandra's answer. After reading Anne Frank, I didn't embrace my own Jewish heritage. If anything, I cowered from it even more. Middle school. But I did see the power of picking up a pen. My identity as a journalist began to take shape in Mrs. O's classroom. And for that, I will always be grateful to her and to Anne Frank. And as this body of literature expands, I am hopeful for future generations of miserable middle schoolers. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table. Sefi?
0: Happy New Year, everybody. No, I'm not a month late. Today, As I record this, on the morning of January 28th, or the 15th day of the Hebrew month of Shabbat, is one of the Jewish New Years. That's right, I said one of. The rabbis of the Mishnah explain that there are actually four New Years on the Jewish calendar. Of course, we're all familiar with Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the month of Tishrei, which marks the anniversary of the creation of the world. Tishrei, despite being the month with the most famous Jewish New Year, is actually not the first month on the Jewish calendar, at least according to the Torah. It's the seventh month. The first month is Nisan, the month the holiday of Pesach falls in. Therefore, the first day of Nisan is also a Jewish New Year. But wait, there's more. The first day of Elul is also a Jewish New Year, kind of a fiscal year. That one's really weird. We're not going to go into it. But the fourth New Year, the one we mark today, is Tu Bishvat, the New Year for the Trees. That's because, according to the rabbis, this date is when the majority of Israel's rainy season is behind us. From this point forward, the trees begin their process of renewing and awakening, and fruit begins to ripen. For that reason, it is customary to eat Israeli produce on Tubishvat. So grab a date, or some grapes, a fig, a pomegranate, some olive oil, or wheat, or barley, and chow down to celebrate the new year. It's not exactly the champagne flute you're used to from December 31st, though it could be. Grapes and the wine they yield are one of the aforementioned fruits. In recent years in modern Israel, Tu B'Shvat has become a kind of arbor day, a time to appreciate the earth and the trees and to think about ecology and our fragile climate. This year, my roommates and I will be celebrating Tu B'Shvat just a bit late at our Shabbat table. I invite you to join us in doing so at yours. Happy New Year, or in Hebrew, Tu Be Shabbat Sameach, and Shabbat Shalom.
5: Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone.
0: You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions, or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us.
1: Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.